Full Scope, Human Longevity and Performance Podcast. We want you to become the most exceptional, high-performing version of yourself. And to facilitate this, we are giving away the Longevity Fundamentals Handbook absolutely free. This is a tremendous resource that will tell you the lifestyle behaviors and mindset that will lead to the best outcomes and longevity. To get this, go to our website, wondermedicine.com or fullscope.org, put in your email, and we will send you this amazing resource, the Longevity Fundamentals Handbook. Welcome back to Sleep Part 2. I want to kick this off by talking about two genetic disorders that affect one's ability to sleep. The first one is a really bad deal. It's called fatal insomnia, often known as fatal familial insomnia. And this is essentially a prion disease. It's a disease of misfolded proteins. There's a few different types, an autosomal dominant type that can run in families, and then a sporadic type as well. But basically what happens is people develop an inability to sleep, starting with insomnia. This leads to a number of mental health disorders that over time develop into worsening paranoia, phobias, and other worsening problems. Eventually they develop hallucinations, panic attacks, and they just can't function in society. This is followed by bodily harm, things like rapid weight loss over the course of just a few months. Eventually dementia ensues, the person becomes progressively unresponsive, and they die, typically within one year. These are people that start with insomnia and then eventually lose the ability to sleep entirely and shortly after this they're dead now i don't bring this up to scare people i just bring it up as evidence that sleep is essential we cannot live without sleep and this genetic disease tells us that now don't be scared this is a rare genetic disease but very interesting nonetheless the next question that I want to address with the genetic disorder is do people actually all need eight hours of sleep? We all know people who say, I can get along just fine with five hours of sleep, six hours of sleep. I only need seven hours of sleep. And the answer is yes, there are some people who can get along with less sleep. A small amount of individuals less than 1% of the total population have a mutation in the ADRB1 gene that codes for the beta-1 adrenergic receptor. This mutation seems to allow them to function on less sleep and not have any of the health defects that we brought up in part one. Usually they can get by with about six and a half hours of sleep and feel rested to the degree that most of us feel after eight hours. So the answer is yes, there is a small amount of people that can get by with less than seven hours of sleep and be healthy, but that is a very small population, and most people who tell you that they do fine on five or six hours of sleep are kidding themselves and adversely affecting their health. Okay, why am I talking about sleep? on a medical podcast focused on keeping you safe and healthy in any environment? The answer is 
very simple. If you are traveling, if you are in a dangerous occupational setting, if you are trying to fly an airplane or go into outer space, you need your mind working optimally, and sleep is the way to do that. The way to keep yourself safe and healthy in any environment is to prioritize sleep and make sure it happens. Traffic accidents are a great example. At least at least 20% of traffic accidents are thought to be due to suboptimal sleep, Th- things that are called microsleeps. And so people who are really tired and sleep-deprived, they go through brief periods where they just zone out. We call that a microsleep. And those microsleeps are thought to be the cause of a lot of traffic accidents. People aren't just fully falling asleep at the wheel and then crashing into something. They're just losing focus for a few seconds, and that alone can lead to accidents. And since automobile accidents cause 30 to 40,000 deaths every year in the United States alone, this is a huge issue. So I thought sleep was fair game in light of that. Boop! Alright, so this is part two of a three-part series on sleep. Last time we talked about why it is important to sleep and the detriments to your mental and physical health that occur when we get suboptimal sleep. Today, I want to talk about some of the mechanisms that control our sleep-wake cycle. I want to break down the architecture of sleep or the actual stages of sleep that we go through and why they're important and and linked to real world examples of of how not getting enough sleep can affect those stages in worse ways than we might think and then i also want to talk about the animal kingdom because there's a lot of interesting facts and, and just little tidbits that are that are really engaging so saddle up this is sleep part two Full scope. Okay, what do you think is the animal that sleeps the longest? Well, we probably don't really know because we haven't studied every animal adequately enough, but the brown bat sleeps about 19.9 hours per day. Alright, what animal sleeps the shortest? Well, Migrating birds sleep less than one hour a day. Now, this isn't every day of their life. So what animal do you think sleeps the shortest amount every day of their life? Well, the answer may be the giraffe. At two hours a day, wild giraffes don't sleep very much. It's pretty crazy, but every animal that has been adequately studied sleeps in some form or another. This should immediately key us in to the importance of sleep. I mean, if you think about it, when we're sleeping, we can't find food. We can't build shelter. We can't reproduce and make more of ourselves. On top of that, we're vulnerable from predation. We're vulnerable to attack from other humans and other species. But yet, sleep continues to occur in every animal that we know of at least for a certain portion of the day. So in humans, what is actually controlling when we go to sleep 
and when we wake up. And there's actually two main mechanisms that drive our sleep-wake cycle. Those two mechanisms are, are the circadian rhythm and sleep pressure, which can go by different names. Some people also refer to it as sleep-wake homeostasis. But essentially, these two processes drive when we feel tired and when it's time to sleep. The first one we mentioned is the circadian rhythm. And the circadian rhythm is a very important cycle that we all follow. It is essentially our internal clock. Believe it or not, our brains have an amazing internal clock. You can think about the last time you had a really important meeting and you set your alarm for 7 and somehow your body woke up at 6.58 and you're like, oh, holy cow. Our bodies know what time it is in a very accurate way. And usually the human circadian rhythm is set at about 24 hours and 10 minutes, so slightly longer than a normal Earth day. But what happens is that our brains and our bodies synchronize our circadian clock with the Earth's daily clock using external cues. And the biggest external cue that we utilize is light. Light during the day keeps us awake, and darkness at night makes us more sleepy. And so the movement of the sun around the Earth is really a huge calibration for our circadian rhythm that tells us when we should go to sleep. And, and in general, sleep occurs at night. When it's dark outside is when people tend to want to sleep. And believe it or not, historically, humans are actually believed to be biphasic sleepers. We generally would sleep two times during the day. At night, we would sleep for a large block of time, probably, you know, depending on where you are in the world and in the seasons and what time it is, a block of time in the night, say, 9 p.m. to 5 a.m. But also, there's generally another time when humans sleep, and that is right after lunch in the early afternoon. So usually like between 1 and 4 p.m. It's no coincidence that after lunch, people get very tired. You know, you go to that after lunch lecture and everyone is falling asleep. It's not just because of the food. Even when people don't eat lunch, they still get tired during this time. It is when people often take a one, two, three hour nap. And this idea of a nap has, has gone away in a lot of parts of the world, but we still see some cultures that do it, particularly uh, some cultures around the Mediterranean in Latin America still follow more of this siesta after lunch. And that's probably a healthy, good thing to do that maybe the rest of us should think about doing as well. But light is this driver or this, or rather not this driver, but this calibrator of our internal clock. It tells us where we are during the day and where we should sleep and where we shouldn't sleep. And for that reason, light can be such a powerful way to help you if you're having trouble sleep, sleeping. And we will talk more about that in the next episode when we talk about tips for getting better sleep. But for right now, I want to move on to the next big driver of sleep, and that is 
sleep pressure, or sleep-wake homeostasis. Essentially, what happens is during the time we're awake, our brains start to build up a molecule called adenosine. And adenosine is part of the energy molecule ATP, adenosine triphosphate. And you can kind of think about it like this. As we're awake, we're using energy in our brains, we're burning ATP, and we're producing adenosine. Adenosine, as it gets more and more concentrated in our brains, makes us want to go to sleep. It increases our sleep pressure. And that is why the longer you stay up, the more sleepy you are. Now, it's interesting when you think about combining these two factors. For a normal person, you're going to have peak tiredness at night after you've woken up in the morning. Adenosine's built up throughout the day, maybe 13, 14, 15 hours. The sun has now gone down. So by both sleep pressure and the circadian rhythm, your body is being told to go to sleep. In contrast, let's say you stay up all night. You don't go to sleep. Your adenosine keeps driving, keeps driving up. You get tireder and tireder as the night goes on. And then as the early morning starts and the sun comes up, most people will get a second wind. What happens is, is their circadian rhythm kicks in and tells them, okay, now it's time to be awake even though their adenosine is still going up and up. So they're still tired. They're not feeling like they had a normal night's sleep, of course, but they're less tired than they were, say, at 3 a.m. by comparison. Kind of interesting to think about those two sleep drivers. Now, there are ways to block adenosine in the brain. The most common one comes from the second most abundantly traded commodity on our planet, coffee. Now, coffee contains a molecule called caffeine that is an analog of adenosine and it basically binds to the same receptor and can block adenosine and therefore block that tiredness sensation that sleepiness and so oftentimes people who don't get enough sleep will use caffeine as a crutch they'll use it to keep themselves up to break that sleep pressure with adenosine we'll talk more about caffeine on the next episode when we talk about how to get better sleep But those are essentially the two things that drive sleep and make us tired. And you can actually harness those things to get better sleep. All right, let's talk about some anatomical areas of the brain that are essential to normal sleep. The first area to think about is the hypothalamus. The hypothalamus is the area of our brain that controls sleep and arousal. It's made up of several different important structures, and we'll talk about some of those structures. One of those one of those structures, though, is the suprachiasmatic nucleus, or the SCN. What this is is a group of about 20,000 cells, so, so not very big as, as far as parts of the brain go. It's part of the hypothalamus, and it's located right where the optic nerves cross the optic chiasm, as they say, and actually right above it. And that's why they call it the suprachiasmatic nucleus. This part of our brain, the SCN, actually monitors light coming through our eyes. It basically can sense light when our eyes see light. And what happens is it sends signals when we are exposed to light to another part of our brain, the pineal gland, that then tells it to turn off the production of melatonin. And melatonin is a very important hormone based off of serotonin that 
that makes us sleepier, increases our drive to go to sleep. What's crazy is that oftentimes even blind people maintain some of their ability to sense light via their eyes such that the majority of them can actually still regulate their circadian rhythm based on light exposure. The next area that I want to talk about is the brainstem. And the brainstem is is a major part of the brain. It's made of the medulla, the pons, and the midbrain. And the brainstem becomes a very important organ during REM sleep or rapid eye movement sleep. We'll talk more about REM sleep, but it's when we experience our most lucid dreams during sleep. And what the brainstem does is it sort of decouples our brain from our bodies such that we're essentially paralyzed. It prevents us from actually acting out these dreams and moving in our sleep, which is essentially very important. You wouldn't want to be kicking and punching and running and jumping as you do in your dreams while you're laying there sleeping in bed. The next interesting part of your brain that has something to do with sleep is the thalamus. The thalamus is an important part of the brain that relays sensory information from the body to the cerebral cortex, or the part of the brain in the front that controls higher level thinking and cognition. This part of your brain, the thalamus, is actually quiet during most of sleep, as you might want because you want to sleep and don't want to be interacting with the outside world. But interestingly, it reactivates during REM sleep. The next thing which we already touched on is the pineal gland. And this is a very important gland in the brain that produces melatonin. And it produces melatonin as a result of signals from the suprachiasmatic nucleus that we discussed earlier. The next neuroanatomy area I want to mention is the basal forebrain. This is an area that releases a, a good amount of adenosine, which which makes us sleepier. There's probably a lot of other parts of the brain that do this as well, but uh, the basal forebrain is one of the principal areas that are thought to drive sleepiness in this way. The final brain neuroanatomy area I want to talk about is the amygdala. The amygdala is a fascinating part of your brain that is very heavily linked to emotion. And I think about the amygdala when I think about our ability to remember very emotional power powerful very emotionally powerful situations so let's say for instance you witness the death of a loved one your brain links that memory up with the amygdala and it makes for a very powerful strong memory but the amygdala is also very active during REM sleep and it's probably because this is a time when we are actively processing our emotions. So those are some important anatomical areas of your brain. Honestly, that is just scratching the surface. There are so many more parts that are important to sleep. And and as we've talked about, sleep really affects everything. And so you can expect it to really affect every part of your brain. But when we think about sleep, really the hypothalamus, the suprachiasmatic nucleus, the brainstem, the thalamus, the pineal gland, and the amygdala seem to be very, very important parts. The next thing I want to talk a little bit about is melatonin. Melatonin is a really important hormone and antioxidant that helps control our sleep-wake cycle, our circadian rhythm. Melatonin is synthesized from an essential amino acid, L-tryptophan. And what essential means when we talk about amino acids or other dietary nutrients is that we can't 
make them with our own cells. Now granted, sometimes the bacteria in our guts and on our bodies can make them, but our own cells cannot, and so we have to get them from our diet. But basically, L-tryptophan also synthesizes another important neurotransmitter, and that's serotonin. And serotonin does a lot of different things in our bodies. People talk about it as the happy hormone. I think that's oversimplified. But you can certainly think about that in light of uh, happiness and in mood and things like that. But basically, L-tryptophan gets synthesized to 5-HTP, or 5-hydroxytryptophan. 5-HTP is then converted into 5-HT, which is essentially serotonin. Serotonin is then synthesized into N-acetylserotonin. And N-acetylserotonin is finally converted into melatonin. So simplified, L-tryptophan gets synthesized into serotonin, which then gets synthesized into melatonin. So very important amino acid for proper sleep and an essential, again, meaning that we have to get it from our diets. There's other hormones that are very important for sleep as well. Cortisol is definitely one worth mentioning. That is a stress hormone. That is a hormone that increases during our flight or flight response. And you can imagine that if your cortisol is high and you're trying to fight or flight, that you're probably not going to be in a good position to fall asleep or start sleeping or keep sleeping. Okay, the next thing I want to talk about briefly is chronotype. Every different human has a different chronotype, and we know these as things like a night owl, someone who likes to stay up very late and wake up very late in the morning. An early bird, someone who likes to go to bed early and then wake up early the next day. And then, of course, there's all types of people in between those night owls and those early birds. The important thing to learn is that these are actually a thing. Some people tend to do their best work late in the evening, and they need to sleep in late in order to get enough sleep so that they can function the next day. Some people are just the opposite. They like to go to bed early because they get their best work done earlier in the morning. Now, the problem is is that we have set up our society entirely to favor the early bird, and we have certainly hurt the night owl as a result. And this is manifested most significantly in high schools. Teenagers tend to be more night owls on average. They tend to stay up later and then need to sleep later as well. And remember, teenagers need more sleep than adults. They probably need 9 to 10 hours of sleep. Here's the real issue. Most high schools in the United States start at 7.50 a.m. That means that these kids are having to wake up at least by 7 a.m., if not quite a bit earlier. If they're on the bus schedule, they may have to wake up at 5 or even slightly before 5 a.m. to catch that bus to get to school on time. If a kid needs 10 hours of sleep and they wake up at 5 p.m., that means they go to, need to go to bed at 7 p.m. the night before. Even if the child can sleep till 7 a.m., that means they need to go to bed at 9 p.m. And what 15-year-old wants to go to bed at 9 p.m.? It's crazy. And what actually some school districts have done is they've moved start times later. 
One very notable one is Jackson, Jackson, Wyoming. And actually what they saw is markedly increased scores when they moved school tart start time from 7.50 a.m. to 9 a.m., giving the kids one hour of extra sleep in the morning improves test scores. This is a big deal, and it's a big deal for teenagers, but it also continues to be a big deal for adults, too. When we force all adults to show up to work at the same time in the morning and then leave at the same time at night, we're essentially cutting off a certain, a huge part of the population. Probably 30 or so percent of the population are night owls, and we're basically making them get up early, not get their best work done, stay up late and get less sleep, and not function at work the next day again in this ruthless cycle of uh, of spiral. You can imagine that if you let those people start a little later, let's say the night owls start work at 11, and they work instead of till 5, maybe they work until 7 or 8. They might get a lot better work done. And so chronotypes are a real thing, and we have set up society pretending like they're not and it's hurt a lot of people and I mean particularly young teenagers and we really need to rethink um, how we schedule society and how we deal with school and work in order to optimize schedules in life for for people that tend to do better late at night and tend to like to sleep in later during the day certain animals can sleep half of their brain at a time I know it sounds crazy but it's true. One group that does this are marine mammals, things like whales and toothed whales like dolphins. It's obvious that whales need to come up and breathe periodically, and so it could be dangerous for them to fully fall asleep. They also sometimes need to keep moving and keep an eye out for predators. And so for them, sleeping half of the brain makes a lot of sense because then they won't forget to do things like surface for air and avoid predators. Another a group of animals that can do this are birds. Birds can sleep half of their brain as well. And what often happens in a flock of birds is that the entire flock will be asleep, but the two birds on the very end will be sleeping just half of their brain so that they can have one eye open on each of the two sides of the flock to keep an eye out for predators. Pretty crazy what nature has done to come up with solutions to uh, protect animals from predation and get them the things that they need. What's up, Full Scope listeners? If you are enjoying this content, if this content is bringing you value, please share it with your friends, loved ones, and everyone else. Post it online, on social media. Let your friends know. Have them subscribe. Put the word out there. That's all we really ask. And at the very least... Give us a review and rate the podcast. Thanks so much. Let's get back to the show. All right. The final thing I want to talk about in this episode is sleep architecture. When we go to sleep, we go through different stages that are all very important for different reasons. Generally, humans sleep in about 90-minute cycles, where we move through light sleep, deep sleep, and then rapid eye movement sleep. Now, technically, most of the big academic people that I see talking about sleep stages and sleep architecture talk about non-REM sleep and REM sleep, and REM sleep, again, being rapid eye movement sleep. 
They generally break up non-REM sleep into four different stages. The first two are considered light sleep. The, the second two, non-REM 3 and non-REM 4, are considered deep sleep. But for simplification, I generally think about sleep as non-REM light sleep, non-REM deep sleep, and REM sleep. Usually what happens in the first stage is that we start to doze off and then we get to sleep. And during this time our temperatures drops, our muscles relax, our breathing and heart rate slow down, and we enter into alpha brain waves. Typically this lasts 10 to 15 minutes before we break into deeper sleep. And deep sleep is really, really important physiologically. In deep sleep it's much harder to wake up than in light sleep. Our heart rate and breathing tone drop to their lowest point. So that's when you're going to have your lowest heart rate during the night is in deep sleep. Our brains start to produce delta waves. And delta waves are, are slow frequency, 0.5 to 4 hertz. In deep sleep, this is when we get the most restorative healing to our body, brain, and immune system. It's when hormones like growth hormone are pulsed, and it's needed for things like creativity, memory, and cognition. Deep sleep tends to be something that happens to us a lot earlier in the night. And so the first half of the night is when we get a lot of deep sleep. For that reason, drinking alcohol often tends to preferentially impair deep sleep because usually you have a few drinks. Those drinks tend to wear off throughout the night and by midnight they're mostly off. But by midnight is when most people have gotten most of their deep sleep. You can see this is a huge problem. So for instance, if you're a chronic alcoholic and you're drinking every day and you're cutting off deep sleep, you're never, your body's never having that pulsation of growth hormone and you're not allowing your body to grow and heal and, and, and get better when it needs to. And that's why alcoholism can be just so devastating and so hard on the body. But basically, we go from light sleep to deep sleep. And then toward the end of our sleep cycle, toward the end of that 90-minute sleep cycle, we enter what's called REM sleep or rapid eye movement sleep. And literally during REM sleep, you can see the eyes moving rapidly underneath closed eyelids. This is when brain activity increases, and brain waves actually mirror those of wakefulness. The muscles actually become paralyzed. Remember we said the brainstem kind of cuts off the connection between the brain and the body such that we can't move during REM sleep. REM sleep is essential for cognition and learning, memory, and creativity. We have dreams throughout all stages of sleep, but during REM sleep is when we have our most vivid dreams. REM sleep is when you wake up and you're like, whoa, and you just remember this crazy dream in just exquisite detail. And believe it or not, some people are even able to be cognizant that they're in a dream during REM sleep. This REM sleep seems to be important for a lot of different reasons, and it seems to be just so important for brain function. It's essentially a virtual world that all of us create every night that we can use to train and to improve and to get better at things. For instance, if you go out skiing one day, it's very likely that that, that night you're going to dream about skiing. And people that are trying to learn a new skill will actually try something, go to sleep, and then wake up much better than they were performing at a day before 
possibly because of this virtual reality training zone of REM sleep that we get to utilize. But REM sleep appears to be very, very important. And during the first few stages of sleep, the first, and I'm talking 90 minutes, like cycles of sleep, we usually get a very little amount of REM sleep. In the first 90 minute cycle, you may get only a few minutes of REM sleep. But as the night goes on, we tend to have longer and longer REM sleep sessions, such that by the end of the night, you may be spending most of your 90 minute cycle, or, or at least up to an hour of it, in REM sleep. And so basically, what, what happens is, during the course of a night, we spend a little over half the time in light sleep. We spend a little under a quarter of the time in deep sleep and a little under a quarter of the time in REM sleep. And the deep sleep is, is stacked toward the first half of the night. The REM sleep is stacked toward the second half of the night. And both of those, deep sleep and REM sleep, are important for different reasons. You can think about those teenagers. Maybe they're having to get up two hours earlier than than they should. Maybe they're only getting seven hours instead of nine hours. Even though they're only getting two less hours, they may be cutting their REM sleep by two-thirds or even three-fourths or losing the vast majority of their REM sleep. And this is why it's so important to get that full night sleep because of the way sleep architecture is. Some interesting other notes about REM sleep is that newborn babies may spend up to 50% of the night in REM sleep. So it seems to be very, very important in learning and cognition and brain development. Another interesting thing about REM sleep is that most all mammals and birds perform REM sleep, while other classes of animals do not have REM sleep. Now, one exception to this are the marine mammals. And that makes a lot of sense because if a marine mammal was forced to uncouple its spinal cord from the rest of its body, it, it would drown. That wouldn't be safe to do underwater. Now, there have been reports of some whales being caught in, in quote, REM sleep. And most people postulate that they undergo some type of REM sleep in some way, but we just don't have the tools or the abilities or the skill to catch it or understand exactly what's happening. But just kind of a fascinating fact about whales. And I, I just love uh, animal facts because I just really like animals and, and they're really fascinating. But this has been kind of an overview of sleep mechanism, what controls our sleep, our sleep cycles, and I really want to focus the next episode on how we can optimize our sleep, what things we can do to get the best possible sleep. And I think that these first two parts, part one and two, have really laid the groundwork to understand what are the underlying mechanisms and now how can we control these mechanisms to get good sleep. And now I leave you with baby sounds. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to the Full Scope Podcast and investing in your health. 
I'm Dr. Bill Rannenberg. If you're enjoying the content, please rate, review, and share this content with all of your friends online and all your social media platforms. Please understand that this podcast is not intended to treat, diagnose, or cure your specific medical condition. This podcast does not create any type of doctor-patient relationship between myself, Dr. Brandenburg, and you, the listener. If you do need help with your life, with your health, with anything regarding your longevity or performance, please check out wondermedicine.com. Our longevity and performance program is the best in the world and is ready to help you right now, today, become the best possible individual you can be. Thanks. Bye-bye.